I'm very glad to be here because, quite honestly, when you take your vote later to say Pastor Bob looks good or not looks good, um, I'm not feeling perfect. How's that? The allergies have really gotten a hold of me, and I'm, I have a tendency to cough a lot. I've got my cough drops here. I've got my water here, and I've got my Kleenexes, so I'm ready to go. Um, when, uh, when I record classes for my school, Dulas, and I have uh, issues with allergies or such, and I cough a lot, I have the luxury of deleting those <laughs> from the recording. It's a wonderful tool, but it doesn't work live. And so I, if I annoy you today with my coughing, I'm very sorry. Um, it's just there. I can't do a thing about it. But God's Word is here, and we're going to look at it. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 12, 13, and 14 today. 1 Corinthians 12, thir- 12, 13, and 14. Really enjoyed those songs this morning. The mercy of our God. What a great thing to think about, sing about. That was precious. Our topic is the efficient functioning of the church. A lot of churches function. That doesn't mean that they're doing it in an efficient way. Efficient is when all the parts are in the right place and it's working. That's the goal, that it should look like that or even sound like that. If you want to know if your car is having problems, you you can usually hear it, can't you? Or you can feel it. Uh, There's something about parts that are not right, and it shows up in the way the performance comes about. And I would hope, and I would pray, as we're, we've been studying this together, we're on Sermon 14 already in this passage, that we're starting to get a grip on the fact that God didn't create the church just to exist, but to thrive, to operate His way to bring a blessing to those around and to bring glory to His name. And I think we all want that, don't we? And so this is a good study for all of us to to come back to what is it that God has designed and how how can I be a part of that to make it work better? And so that's, that's the personal side of what we see here. But look at the text today, verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members... And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Father, help us today. The text looks easy enough. And yet there's so much for us to learn. And I pray that our hearts will be receptive. Our attention will be given solely to your word. That you would do your work in our midst and bring glory to your name. Lord, I've said it many, many times, but we have met here today to hear from you and learn from you. And we pray that you'll change us, make us different than what we were when we first came in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Just a a moment of review, please. Verse 1 through 11, we just covered all that. Verse 1 through 11 is a theological framework for what the church is. 
in that section where we, we saw how God designed it. And we're learning how to efficiently function inside this church. How does the church work to the best of its capabilities? Is a question we should be asking. What, what makes, what things make it operate better? What things make it less productive? Of course, we want to avoid those, don't we? But what we started with is the simple fact that the church is well equipped to be all that it ought to be. You're not missing anything as far as God's gift to this church. He, he, the church is his idea. Is that true? That's what we've seen. The church was purchased by the blood of Christ. It belongs to him. The church is being built by Jesus Christ. I will build my church, he said. The church will not fail. I love that. He says, even if the gates of hell pound against it, the church will still prevail. And I think sometimes it's obvious in our day and age that the world, and Satan does not like the things of God. Have you noticed lately? Be, be thankful. Jesus Christ will not fail. And his church will not fail. The church will ultimately stand before the Lord. We were talking about this in Sunday school today. Perfect. Perfect. Just as he planned. Just as he planned. We were in that verse that talked about no spot and wrinkle and stuff like that. We thought that was a great idea. No wrinkles. That uh, the church is going to stand there in all her glory. And uh, that's just a simple way of saying he did it. He did exactly what he said he would do. And when we stand before him someday, we're going to be in awe of it because he will not fail. The church will not show up to heaven 99% complete. It will be all the way. That's an amazing thing. I'd love to spend a lot more time on that. But that's just the theology that we're setting up on here to understand. Because between the place where it began... And the place where it's at its final state, the church is being guided and strengthened and supported and taught and counseled and corrected and on and on and on. The Holy Spirit's at work. That's his job. And he will see that it's through. And it, we are instructed by the Word of God. We have been gifted uh, by it to tell us how to do it. The church does not lack what it needs to mature. Alright? That's important to understand. We have the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the gifts of the ministries. We're talking about here, but I take you back to Ephesians 4 many times, and that those gifts are designed. Each one of you have a gift, and each gift is designed to help the whole church become like Christ. And that's important for us to remember. Because last time we were together, a couple weeks ago, in this passage, there were four facts I presented from verse 7. And they're very important. These, again, are theological frameworks that we work with. Number one was that each one in the body is given a gift by the Holy Spirit. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you have been gifted to serve the body. All right? You have been. There's no doubt in my mind, because this is the way God set that up. And it's important to start seeing the gifts and the value of the other guy in the body. 
start realizing it's not just about us, me, personally. It's about all of us. So, that's important. We've already seen as well that each gift is different. We are different ministries, different effects. Don't expect anyone to be just like you. That's not the way God designed it. We're not looking to conformity of one part to the other part, but conformity of all the parts to Jesus Christ. That's our goal. Christ is the head of the body. We'll talk about that again in a minute. So, don't have an attitude. If somebody is different than you, they don't belong. That's not the right place for us to be. That causes divisions. That causes quarrels, and it keeps us mentally unstable. It keeps us immature, and we don't work well together when we're thinking that way. That's fact number one. Fact number two, we saw in verse seven, that each one in the body are given a gift by the Holy Spirit. You did not buy it, you did not earn it. He gave it to you out of His grace, out of His mercy, out of His will, even. It's not your design, it's His. Boy, that does a lot for us. Because, first of all, it kicks out pride, doesn't it? You can't walk around and say, I'm important because of my gift. Who gave it to you? God did. Well, yeah, you're important because He gave you that gift. But that doesn't mean that you're more important than somebody else. Because they got the gifts given to them, too. God knows what He's doing. To have something given to you and something earned is two different things. Giving is governed by the giver, not the receiver. So humility is important for us in this process, too. Fact number three, it's mentioned the manifestation of the Spirit. He didn't use the word gift, he used manifestation of the Spirit in verse 7. It's the idea of that which shows or declares or openly clearly shows the operations of the Spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit. It's the display of the Holy Spirit among us. And I give you a simple observation from this. When we are operating according to God's plan for the church, we are not getting the attention. He is. That's how you know when you're doing it right, by the way. When he gets the attention, it's not a display of us. It's a display of the Holy Spirit among us. And I think it would be beautiful to hear somebody say, I came to your church and it's obvious the Holy Spirit's at work in your midst. Wouldn't that be a nice compliment? That's the manifestation of the Spirit. When we see the value of each other in the body, when we see the value of each other's gifts, in the body, when we see the value of bearing together with one another in the body, when we see the value of humility and submitting to each other as we submit to the Holy Spirit, then we will see what the Holy Spirit is doing in our midst. Because it's all about Him and not about us. I think John the Baptist said it so well. He must increase, I must decrease. I know he was talking about Christ, but How much greater is it that people see God at work and not us? That's what our goal should be. And fact number four was all of this is for the common good. 
for the common good. That means we bear together, we bring together, we carry together. Those words are all inside that word, common good. We bear together because we, we see that each individual is different. And as we know, at different maturity levels too. <laughs> and we acknowledge, <coughs> we acknowledge that and we, we help each other because our goal is that all of us are growing, right? So we will invest in that because we see the differences. We will bring together. We, we need each other is a simple picture here because we are not complete by ourselves. Never will be. Each of us is important to the whole body. And then we carry together. It suggests that we need to learn how to work together if we're going to do this. It's intentional, folks. <laughs> it doesn't accidentally happen. We invest our time into finding out how we can work together. The church is not a do-it-yourself project. Do you know that? It's not. It's, it's something that we're all involved in, and that's the way God designed the body so you have a role. Understand? Sum it up. You have a role. You have a gift given to you by the Holy Spirit. Your gift is designed so that He gets the glory and not you. And using your gift is designed to bring us all together to work better. That's called efficiency. That's doing it His way. I told you that's the theological framework for what we've been studying. Very important that we know all that. Because now we're going to start talking about the practical functioning of the church as well from verse 12 on. And we see these verses that we just read together, especially verse number 1. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members are of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Let's emphasize that verse especially today. There is really in these three verses... Two very essential understandings. And if we don't get them right, I'll tell you what's going to happen. We, if we get this messed up in our mind, we're going to be as dysfunctional as it gets. All right? Though we might have all the right parts and all those same ambitions, if we stir it all up inside, it's not going to look right. It's not going to function right. The practical side is not less important. It's actually using what we know in a way that, that uh, enhances the ministry and not takes away from it. And so what I'm going to share with you today, I honestly know this to be true. You're going to say, Pastor, that's very simplistic. Uh, it's kind of elementary. All right. You came here, you were thinking, well, we're going to be in like uh, 12th grade or third year of college or something. And he's talking about second grade stuff. And you're going to say, why, Pastor, are you taking us down to that level? I, I'm not doing anything intentionally that way. It's just that here's a simple thing. And maybe Kelly can help us with this because he knows math. You know math, don't you? He's a math teacher. Even in calculus, if you don't add up 1 plus 1 equals 2, you're going to get it wrong. Is that true? I never took calculus. It scares me to death. Really. I got through geometry and I said, I'm not going into fake numbers. <laughs> Whatever that stuff is beyond that, I'm not doing that. So I needed some common sense and geometry was too much for me anyway. I'd rather study theology, wouldn't you? 
immerse yourself in a good Greek course or Hebrew or something? Not that mad stuff. But I do know the simple sides of it. One plus one equals two. And that works no matter what level you're on. And that's what I want to share, share with you here today. This simple thing. You're going to say, Pastor, we know all that. But we need to see it again. Two things. I'm only dealing with the first one today. Number one, we are all in one body. We are all in one body. I'm saying we. That's if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you belong to Him, you place your faith in Him, that's who I'm talking to, okay? I'm not just saying that generally because if you're here and you've never accepted Christ, I'm not talking to you about this. Because that's not where the body exists. It's not made up of unbelievers and believers. It's made up of only believers in Jesus Christ. Understand that? Okay. So, we are all in one body. Point number one, we're covered today. Point, <coughs> point number two, uh, we are all individual members of one body. That's next time, I think. Okay, the clearest verse for this is verse 27. Just scan down the page. I know it's ahead of schedule here, but it's so clear, it's so easy. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. You are Christ's body, point one. Individually members of it, point two. It's very clear. So let's start with an understanding. When the New Testament talks about one body, it's talking about the church as a whole. That's the biggest picture I could give you. It's the church as a whole. Keep your bookmark here and go to Ephesians chapter 3. Verse uh, 4, Ephesians 3, verse 4. I'm going to keep you in Ephesians for several minutes here. <coughs> Ephesians 3, verse 4. What we're looking at, we are all in one body, right? Paul starts to write by referring to this. When you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, here it comes, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Say, okay, what about... Well, back in verse 4, he said, referring to this. Well, what's that? What was he referring to? Well, back up to chapter 2 for a minute. Chapter 2, verse 8. Might even be on the same page. I love this verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship. The Greek word for that is the same word as poem. Isn't that pretty sounding? You're his poem, poema. You're his poem. It's his masterpiece. You might even have that word. Some translations put that instead. You are his masterpiece. 
but here it is. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. We personally apply that verse to ourselves. By grace we've been saved through faith. We are his workmanship. But if you were living in Paul's day, you would read those words as a Gentile, and the Jews would say, hey, wait a minute. How can that be? You can't give a blanket statement for everybody, can you? I mean, Gentiles aren't like Jews, are they? They're different. You, you can't say, that was a big struggle in the church. If you study early church history, especially up to Acts chapter 15, they could not fathom a Gentile being saved. They heard all those Gentiles say, that's not possible. That's impossible. You can't save a Gentile. They couldn't figure that out. And so they actually had a council meeting in Acts chapter 15. All the bigwigs came together. Paul and, and Peter and all the rest, they all got together. And they said, okay, let's figure this out. Gentiles are being saved. What do we do about that? What, what, do we expect them to live like Jews? They said, no, 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 thankfully. But they decided that they were needing to not only grow and, and stay away from uh, immorality and idolatry and things of that nature. Yes, they did say everybody should. But they rec recognized that they were also saved by the same grace of God. They were saved through, saved through the same faith in Jesus Christ. They were saved just like they, the Jews were. You know what? They found out that God could save anybody. Isn't that a beautiful thing to know? God can save anybody. And that's what they learned that day. And they were learning it. But what blew them away is the fact that God took both Jew and Gentile and put them into the body of Christ. There are not two bodies. There's one. And that's why Paul's saying... To be specific, in chapter 3, verse 6, to be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Heirs. The, the Gentiles are fellow members. The Gentiles are fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. That's incredible. That's the church. And Paul would go about teaching this from church to church to church, specifically teaching the unity of the body of Christ. When he wrote to the Ephesians, he called it the church in Ephesus. And when he wrote to Philippi, he said the church in Philippi. And to the Romans, the church in Rome. And to the, the Laodiceans, yes, Paul wrote to them too. We don't have that record. But he called them the church in Laodicea. Because the church was in all those locations. It was made up of Gentiles. Here's another one. You're in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. Watch these words. It gets powerful. He himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both, both, in one body to God through the cross. Don't create a division where God didn't make it. Keep going. Look down to verse 19. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into the dwelling of God in the Spirit. This is what he's doing. Jump one more time, Ephesians 4, verse 4. Folks, just let this... this Soak right in. Listen carefully. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. There is one God and one Father who is over all and through all and in all. Paul didn't teach this only to the Ephesian believers. He had to share this with churches all over the place. When he wrote to the Romans in chapter 10, verse 12, he says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches to all who call on him. In Galatians, he said in chapter 3, verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. He said to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 11, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Jew or Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian. I like that word, barbarian. If you're a barbarian, you fit. Isn't that great to know? There's barbarians, Scythians, slaves, freemen. Christ is all and in all. I gave you a bunch of verses just to show you. Paul taught this to everybody because everybody needed to hear it. Let's be very specific. How is the one body composed? Here's the simple answer. Jesus Christ is the head of all of it. He is the head of all of it. In Ephesians 5, if you're still there, you'd see it in verse 23 and verse 30. Chapter 5, 23. Chapter 5, verse 30. 23 says, For as the husband is the head of the wife, so Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. 
There is no word of man that overrides the word of Christ. Ever. Our history is taught otherwise. We've had people who said, I would rather have this particular leader like the Pope's word than the word of Christ. They used to teach that the Pope's word was greater than Christ. That's not true. Christ is the head of the body. The head of the body. There's one head. He himself is the savior of the body. And it says in verse 30, and we are the members of his body. He said it again in Colossians 1 verse 18. He also is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He is the head. He is the head. What's that mean? What's that mean? We have been put into the body by an act of divine will. It is the role of the Holy Spirit to place us into that body that Christ is the head of. Here in 1 Corinthians 12, you saw it in verse 13. (laughs) For by one Spirit, (coughs) by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether you're Jew or Greek, whether you're slave or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. You like that word baptized? You say, I've used that. I've seen that word a lot. I mean, pastor is going to do a baptism here pretty soon. If you're saying the word baptized, you're speaking Greek. Did you know that? You're Greek students, right? Uh-huh. Baptized. That's the Greek word, baptizo. That doesn't tell you what it means. It just tells you that's the word. If you were a Greek today, and you would ask, well, what does baptize mean? It means to immerse. I'm not playing a political game here, church politics or anything of that nature, but that's the word they use. It was used long before it's used in a theological way we talk about. They used it if you were a person who worked with material clothing and you needed to dye something to make it a different color, to make a dress, you wanted it purple or something like that, you would immerse it as baptized into the dye to change its color. Now, if you don't do it all the way, you get tie-dye. We don't have tie-dyed Christians because the picture of immerse means completely in, all the way in, push it all the way down. That's the word that God chose to use throughout Scripture to say something more than just what we do with water. Right? It's back there in case you don't know. We have a baptismal tank. It's not, that's just a picture. But what this is saying is not about water. He's talking about the action the Holy Spirit did to put you into Jesus Christ, and He put you in completely, folks. He didn't leave a toe hanging out, an arm hanging here. The fact is, when you're put into the body of Christ, you're either all in or you're not in at all. And that's what it says here, that the Holy Spirit is done. When you became a believer in Christ, I like to picture it, He grabbed you and stepped you into the body of Christ. You're in. He's ahead. But God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as He desired. That's verse 18. That's what God has done for you. That is an act of grace and mercy. 
that he would consider us. Look at ourselves. He says, yeah, I want them in the body of Christ. Some of us, we look in the mirror and say, boy, I'd like to cut off that part. Maybe? No? All right, don't admit it, but okay. But we look at there and we say, I could do without that. I could do without that. I could do it. Christ never does that with his body. He doesn't look at you and say, boy, I don't know why God ever put them in here. I, I'd like to get rid of them. He never says that. If you've been put in the body of Christ, you're in the body of Christ. Now let's think big. You ready? If the body, <coughs> if the body includes Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, male and female. Well, you saw those verses, didn't you? If the body includes all those, it includes all who have placed their faith in Christ throughout the whole world. Throughout the whole world. We got brothers and sisters in the body of Christ in places like Ukraine that is really suffering. We have brothers and sisters in Sudan. We have brothers and sisters in Australia. We have brothers and sisters in Gary, Indiana, of all places. I could criticize that. I was born there. Did you know that? I was born in Gary, Indiana. I don't take pride in that, but it was just reality. God has his children, those who belong to him, who have been placed in the body of Christ, spread out over this whole earth right now. And they're in the same body as you are. They're in the same body. That's rather big. That's challenging to think, okay, so how are we supposed to function efficiently when they're spread out so far? How do we do that? Well, let me get a little bigger. Can I go a little bigger? That's pretty big. A little bigger. The body of Christ is composed of all believers since, I'm going to use the date, A.D. 33. Chapter 2 of the book of Acts. When the church began. Peter was there. Later it would be Paul too. <laughs> Philip. Later a guy named Luke. Another man named Timothy. Much later, a guy named Polycarp. You ever hear that name before? Isn't that a great name? Polycarp. William Tyndale in the 1500s. Oh, John Calvin in the 1500s. Charles Spurgeon. Martin Luther. J.C. Ryle. Those are some of my favorite people. Billy Graham. You know, there are some very important people in history, that have been part of the body of Christ. Sometimes you, you might get a little proud to say, hey, they were part of the body of Christ too. They belong to us. That's kind of fun to say. However, there is a problem when it comes to efficient functioning. Everybody I just named is dead. It's kind of hard to work with them right now. How, how does this work? If there are many members, and they all lived in different centuries, how does that work? Let me tell you, first of all, time is not a problem for God. When it comes to the body of Christ, He's not limited to the year 2022. He, matter of fact, He created time. I don't know if you realize this. God created time. Time did not create God. It wasn't there before God, or else time would be God. 
I know we serve it, don't we? But God is the controller of time. And what's interesting is, when you think, think, think big, you realize you cannot effectively function without the whole body. And God has a way of making sure that that works. In Hebrews, it talks about it. It talks about you're not complete without the rest of them. You're not, the, you're not a complete picture without these, without these two. Some of them have led the way. Some of them have held the fort. Some of them have gave their lives so that we could have an English Bible in front of us. That served you today. Some of them served in so many different ways that we study them and learn from them and their, their teaching. They have been a valuable part of the church body. And they're not even here. But how does it become practical? It doesn't work that way in Hillsdale, Oklahoma, uh, in the sense that, you know, we're just a fragment. We're a fragment of the whole body. There's a big body out there. Yet in God's masterful way, folks, listen carefully. In God's masterful way, he put together this great mystery called the church that he could plant it locally to look like him as much as universally to look like him and over spans of centuries to look like him. That's big. But never underestimate what God can do. And so he went about putting these local pictures, localizing, representing the whole, but each with their own characteristics in their own region, in their own time zone, existing to reflect the whole. This is God's wisdom. This is God's wisdom. One big body of Christ, many local representations of that body, being built to be just like the whole, operating just like the whole, gifted just like the whole, made unique in its particular regional setting. In other words, you just can't simply pick up Hillsdale Bible Church, walk across the globe, plant it in another place, and think it's going to be exactly the same. It's in a different location. It's made up of different people in different places. What is unique to Hillsdale, Oklahoma, is just as unique to the Colossians or the Romans. That's how God works. And what's amazing in all this, the marvelous creativity of our God, He can make all of that as one body in Christ. That's big. That's big. Taking many small local bodies to make up the whole, and all of them resemble Christ, and someday we'll all stand together. Before that throne. How cool is that going to be? Let me give you a simple illustration of the value of something little. Something little, something unique. My wife Kay's not with us, she's with the Lord. She had a uniqueness in her family. I wouldn't have told this while she was here. I would have been in trouble. Her dad had eight toes. She had eight toes. We kind of had fun with that sometimes. But nobody knew that. I mean, some people might have, if you were in Bible study with her and you took off her shoes, said, hmm, that looks interesting. She had eight toes. Do you know what we did every time a baby was born in our family? Some people look at their eyes. Some people look at their hair. 
We looked at their toes first. We counted them. One, two, three, four, five, six. Those are little toes, but there were ten. Every one of them had ten. So Paul's got ten toes. Isn't that great to know? <laughs> you say, well, that's why, what's, what's the point? What I always thought was something so special about newborn babies. You hold them in your hand, and there they have all the parts of an adult in a small package. And that's always amazed me. Think of the church in Hillsdale like that. It's all the parts. We're not missing anything the Lord has designed for this function. He has put all the parts together, and it reflects the bigger one. Isn't that just great to see it? Now, why, why is that so important? Because we, as believers in Christ, are all in one body. We're all in one body. As that's what verse 12 says, we're in one body. It's one body. It's one body. Value the fact that it's one body in Christ. Don't assume that somebody doesn't belong. Always oh, going to give you a big lecture on that in a few verses. Don't assume somebody doesn't belong just because they're different. If anyone has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has put them in Jesus Christ. And so don't ever look at a believer in Christ and say, they don't belong with us. That's how practical it gets. Because if God placed them here at this time, at this place, in this fellowship, He put them here for a reason. And that is, to glorify Him, and to work with us. And I know sometimes that could be a little challenging, but what a difference it would make in our efficient functioning if we begin to understand that in Christ we belong together. We belong together. Let's serve like that. Let's serve like that. Next time we're going to talk about what it means to be an individual member in that one body. But you saw my point today, I hope. We're all in one body in Christ Jesus. Let's live like that. It's practical, folks. It's not just theological. Heavenly Father, help us with this today, we pray. Far too often our pride gets in the way. Far too often we, <coughs> we look upon each other as if we're superior, they're inferior, we compare things that have no value, technically. Education, wealth, property. We look at each other through all kinds of different measuring systems. That ranks us in one way or the other. And we call some important and some not important. But today, let us set up a new standard. We're all one in Christ. In the body of Christ, we belong to you. You are the head. And we are all meant to be placed together, to function together to the glory of Christ. <coughs> Help us today to grasp that, we pray. Guide us through it. Help us to look at each other the way you would look at us and see the value of each one in this room. And those on our Zoom... And those who can't be here today, encourage this body in our head, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.